Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like eagles. Arms out wide. If we're going to fear, we fear no evil. We will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're going to stand, we stand as giants. If we're going to walk, we walk as lions. Good morning, good morning. It is the 23rd of August, 2022. I'm LaBurge, your host. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, It's possible that you are new here, and so we want to welcome you into the room. Um, What are we trying to do here? We are trying to cultivate the mind of Christ on the matters of the day. We are seeking to walk our faith out into the world that God so loves and do so in ways that honor Jesus. So we don't want to embarrass Jesus. We want to represent him to others as ambassadors of the king and the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. So we... Um, we take headlines and we look at them from um, what I call a gospel or redemptive worldview. You might have heard that called a Christian or a biblical worldview, but I think those particular terms are overused and, um, you know, have lost much of their meaning. So when you hear me talking about worldview, I am advocating a redemptive or a gospel worldview, interested in Christians always and in all ways advancing the gospel, the good news um, of God's redeeming love in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day is Proverbs 22, 6. We actually talked about this verse at length yesterday um, as I brought it to bear on um, on yesterday's verse of the day. So here it is, direct your children into the right path or onto the right path, and when they are older, they will not leave it. So that is a great promise of God. It's also a great challenge of parenting and discipleship. Um, but it's also a great hope, and we hold out that hope, particularly for those of you listening right now um, who have prodigals in your life. Um, but you know that you you've, you pray for them. You know that you directed them onto the right path when they were little. And so you are holding out hope that God is going to make good on this prom- promise in Proverbs 22.6. I want to talk for just a minute here um, about what we measure. So just think for a moment about what you measure. I'm not talking about like getting on the scale and, you know, that's no fun to measure that almost no matter what. Um, But let's talk for a minute about what we measure in terms of what we're tracking, because what we track is what we remember. It's what we actually hold in mind. It's what we choose to think about. And it is what gets publicly repeated. So it makes for good polling. Like, you know, what are you measuring? What are you what are you keeping track of? In 2008, Gallup thought it would be a good idea to start measuring suffering as a part of the life evaluation index. And guess what? And guess what? Since they've been asking the question, people have been tracking their suffering, been keeping count of it, been taking note of it. And guess what? When people are told to start keeping account of their suffering, their awareness of suffering, and their sense that they are suffering rises dramatically in some cases. What we measure matters. So we're told today in this uh, Uh, in Gallup's Life Evaluation Index, that the percentage of Americans who evaluate their lives poorly enough to be considered suffering uh, rose to 5.6% in July. So 5.6% of Americans surveyed in Gallup's Life Evaluation Index described themselves as 
suffering. Now, that is the highest since the index um, first started in 2008. So what does that mean? Um, And how many people classified themselves as thriving? Well, that number has declined steadily. Um, It was a record high of 59.2% of Americans surveyed who said they were thriving in June of 2021, uh, to July's estimate, this July, of just over 51% of adults who were surveyed classified themselves as thriving. How would you um, answer the question? What are you counting? What are you measuring? What are you tracking? What are you recording today? What if, instead of counting all the things that we don't have and wish we had, we started countering, counting all the blessings we do have? What if, instead of counting all the aches and pains, that we counted all the ways we are able to get around and communicate and live and move and have our being? What if instead of counting all the disappointments and aggravations of living where we live, we counted all the things about our nation for which we are thankful? I'm thinking about Ephesians chapter 1 and all the things that Paul accounted for there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Reread uh, Ephesians chapter 1 if you want to be reminded of the things we ought to be counting as Christians. Let's turn to the headlines of the day with our friend Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is back from Cedarville University. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Carmen. How are you doing today? I am well. I am well. I hope you are well as well. Um, Let's talk about this uh, piece in Axios about American voters' private beliefs versus their, um, actually what they tell pollsters publicly. Talk with us about what what is censorship and what does it mean to self-censor? Yeah, it's a really interesting piece. Uh, It's based on some survey data. Uh, where they found some significant differences between what people tell pollsters about what they believe and then how they reveal their private beliefs when it's more of an anonymous situation. Um, And a good example here is they found that uh, people were much less likely to be supportive of abortion restrictions in private than they were uh, in in public. Uh, Views of COVID and the efficacy of masks uh, people were much more likely to say in public that masks were effective and necessary, but in private were less likely to believe that. And so it's an interesting dynamic here uh, where people seem, at least some people, seem to be saying things uh, privately that they wouldn't say publicly or vice versa. A lot of it comes down to what we call social desirability bias. Uh, when you talk to a pollster or when you talk to other people who you don't know, but you're in something like an official capacity you tell them things that you think they want to hear because you don't want to appear to be narrow-minded or bigoted. Uh, you don't want to look foolish in front of them. And so you'll sort of hedge yourself a little bit and soften your points of view. Um, and and that I think that creates a lot of interesting dynamics right now in particular. Historically, we've seen this around race and racism. So when you poll people about race and their racial attitudes, there's often a pretty big difference between what they tell pollster and other indicators in their lives. Uh, But it looks like it might be creeping into culture war issues as well, which could create a lot of interesting political ripples. 
So um, it looks like there's a, about a 10 percent difference between um, what we say publicly and what we believe privately. Um, and so we're not talking about, you know, everybody right. uh, in the That's culture right. doing this. Um, but I do think it matters because understanding what people's actual views are versus their stated views is important. Um, I think we all self-censor, right? I mean, every time we don't say the first thing that comes to our mind, um, I would say for Christians, you know, when we invite Jesus to take every thought captive, we are at some level self-censoring when we rely on the Holy Spirit to literally hold our tongue sometimes. So self-censorship is actually, I think, a part of the common good in terms of living in a pluralistic society, not always saying the first thing that pops to my head. That's a different kind of of self-censorship than we're talking about here. This this kind is like actual duplicity. Yeah, I think so, because there's there's a disconnect between uh, what you're saying to somebody and then what you might be doing, like when you step into a voting booth uh, or when you support a particular party or a particular candidate. And so there is, I think, something of an integrity issue, you could argue, uh, in situations like this. And it makes me think about you know, as we look at referenda and other ways to deal with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, when you think of the results out of Kansas not that long ago, um, are we going to see a certain fraction of people say that they're supportive of abortion restrictions um, and then in reality go to the voting booth and do something very, very different? Right. Um, which I think is going to lead to some interesting outcomes that maybe it'll be pretty hard to predict. Yeah, I actually, in my notes for this um, conversation... <laughs> I wrote, I imagine this renders traditional polling unreliable and obsolete. (laughs) Well, I think especially when it comes to these kind of hot button, high profile social issues that are polarizing and divisive. Um, I don't think it'd necessarily be the case with everything, uh, but things where, you know, there's a little bit of political incorrectness perceived or a little bit of, you know, we really really can't say that in public anymore. Um, And so there I think you are likely to see some polling maybe skewed. Uh, in interesting ways. Yeah, I think that um, particularly for Christians, because that's, you know, primarily who we're talking with today, Mark, um, it matters that we say in public, uh, you know, what we believe in private, because integrity matters and trust matters and public witness matters. Um, But also the people who are closest to us know. And so if they hear and see us, if our kids hear and see us, if our parents hear and see us, um, saying something different in public than they know we believe in private or have done yeah. in private. Yeah. Um, like, right, we've we've destroyed our own witness, at least to that one other person. Um, and those are the people closest to us. And so if we then wonder why they walk away from the faith, um, we ought to look in the mirror. I mean, like, right, if we have been internally inside our own homes, inside our own cars, inside our own conversations, um, basically witnesses against ourselves. Uh, in terms of the things of the faith, then, you know, why wouldn't they walk away? Like, why why would they think that Christianity holds? So I think there's a, I think it's a big deal. I think it's a bigger deal than just, um, you know, 10 points in an Axios poll. No, I, I agree with you. Um, and I think we are called to be relatively straightforward people. You know, what you see is what you get. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, There shouldn't be any guile or duplicity to who we are as believers. And as you said, there shouldn't be a disconnect between our public lives and our private lives at all, uh, because the people we're going to most affect are the ones that are going to see us in private. But then we do have this public witness to worry about as well. 
and that lack of integrity is is uh you know i think it's biting us every day frankly um mm. we need to have a strong relationship between what we say and what we do all right i'm reading that there's uh, at least one lawmaker leaving the uh leaving the gop um resigning from the republican party and becoming a democrat that's happening in colorado we're going to talk about purple politics up next with mark caleb smith what what actually is happening in the shifting sands uh, at the national level in terms of our political conversations? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, It happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Do I, 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 do I? All right. Uh, we hear lots of conversations about lawmakers um, switching parties or third party popularity, a growing discontent for the 60 percent of Americans who are not on the political far right or the far left. And um, and now at least one um, person who is actually um, she has crafted a campaign around being purple. So let's talk about purple politics Oh, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is with us this morning. What are purple politics and why do they hold a little hope for the future? Uh, purple politics, of course, is a reference to the blended politics of a red state and a blue state. And so we think of red states, Republican, obviously, blue states as Democratic states uh, and purple states that are competitive, where it isn't very clearly red or clearly blue politicians are having to figure out a way to be competitive in that environment. Um, And the way they have to do it is often to be bipartisan, uh, to be somewhat moderate, and to be willing to reach across the aisle to get things done and to to give, you know, acknowledgement uh, to the other side so that they can court uh, voters who may generally be against them. So a recent profile of a Senate candidate, Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire, uh, emphasizes this idea of purple politics. And it might be idealistic in a way, honestly, um, but she argues that uh, people really want to see this kind of behavior. They want to see bipartisanship. They want to see people in Washington, D.C. working together to get things accomplished. And in her defense, she can point to a pretty good list of things in the Biden administration that have been somewhat bipartisan. Uh, infrastructure spending, uh the gun regulation bill had some some Republican support. The chips bill had some Republican support. And so she says, you know, this is maybe a good model for the future. Um, yeah. I don't know if every state's like New Hampshire. That's really the question. You know, you, mm-hmm. There aren't that many purple states when you get right down to it. It looks like our states are sorting pretty heavily toward red or toward blue. Uh, but I think you're right. It does give some hope potentially that there is a spirit of bipartisanship still left somewhere. So I'm wondering if on the on the red state, blue state issue, part of it is where the lines are drawn. I mean, it, maybe it appears that a state is more red or more blue because of the way the lines are drawn and therefore the ways um, in which people actually get elected to these offices. I mean, I 
I know a lot of purple people. I live in a very red state, but I know a lot of purple people, people who would very much like to see problems solved um, at the state and the national level. Um, they're exhausted by the the far right and the far left um, and who really are more interested in solving problems than winning an argument. I mean, I know a lot of purple people and I live in a very red place. So, uh, you know, is it possible that we're more purple as a nation than, um, you know, than the battle lines tell? Yeah, I, I think it is very possible. Um partly because of redistricting, like you're talking about, and the way that we gerrymander things to make it so uh, the incentives line up in our political system right now uh, for those polarized candidates to come through the primary process. And then by the time they get to the general, they're fairly uh, far right or fairly far left to the point where uh, it looks like a very heavily red or blue state. So I think that there's a lot of truth of that. Um, I also think the media environment pushes us to extremes often, as well as the social media environment pushes us to extremes. Uh, but, you know, I think the thing that you mentioned right at the outset, that a lot of Americans don't feel really comfortable with either party and they don't feel real comfortable with where our political system is at the moment. Uh, I think that there's truth in that. But right now, the mechanisms are not in place to really take advantage of that. Uh, you know, we we have third parties that are cropping up a little bit here and there. You've probably heard about Andrew Yang uh, and his desired forward party, uh, which is getting off to a little bit of a rocky start, I think, when you look at it. Um, but it's it's hard to see, you know, the way that our system is set up with a winner-take-all process um, for our elected legislative seats, it's hard to see it really changing a lot without pretty significant reform. Uh, and, and how likely that reform is to get through, boy, it's tough in an environment like ours. So um, when you think about the, taking the long view, what yeah. does that mean today in in the United States of America? What does it mean to take the long view now? Uh, I think the I think the long view looks at sort of big picture structural realities and looks to see whether those are safe whether those function relatively well, whether it works the way that it's designed to work. Um, I think you could argue, for example, that our Constitution actually functions to some extent like it was really made to to function. Um, we want our government to do a lot more because it's our desire for it to do a lot more. But the, at the federal level, it really wasn't designed to do that much. And so in a way, it kind of works well. Um, it's easy to get caught up in the short term because that's the way the news cycle works. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think taking a longer view of things maybe should give us a little bit more hope. Uh, structures have been fairly resilient even through this pretty difficult time of the last couple of years through COVID and through political unrest. Uh, it doesn't always feel stable, uh, but the system actually, I think, is, is relatively stable when you look at it that way. We talked yesterday um, about uh, the piece in the New York Times that I know you also um, read uh, this comment that, you know, not only is the present form of the U.S. Constitution obsolete, but constitutionalism is obsolete. I'm going to give you a minute to comment on that. Um, you know, I, I think I I don't want to compare myself to Abraham Lincoln because I'm not, but I think I feel <laughs> even a lot have like a stove. Do you even have a stovepipe hat? Because that, that's sort of the beginning of that conversation. I, I should get one. I do yeah, not. Should. I should get one. Um, but Leo you know, Lincoln famously talks about the House divided. And I do really wonder whether uh, we have enough support for our Constitution from the right and the left 
for it to be an enduring an enduring document um i i think it's 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 folly to think of, of restructuring it i think it's worked really well on the whole uh, as a form of government but it feels like a lot of people on the left progressives as well as a lot of people on the right uh, are frustrated at the form of government and particularly at the, at the bill of rights um, we see an awful lot of, well, I love my free speech, but I only love it for me. I don't love it for the other people. Um, and so we've got to start thinking through, I think, some level of adherence to the Constitution as sort of an authority outside of ourselves. But that's got to be between both parties. And uh, I, I will say, you know, you asked me about the long view. My long view answer assumes that the Constitution stays as it is. Mm-hmm. If that changes, then my long view would probably change as well. Oh, well, yeah, actually, I, we, we would probably have a very short view of America yeah, as right. we know it. Yeah, right. That's, that's sort of how that goes. Yeah. Uh, and we don't really want to go there. So, um, Mark, as always, thank you so much. Um, blessings on the beginning of a new academic year. And um, we love talking with you. Thank you for joining us. It's always great. And classes start tomorrow. So uh, it'll be it'll be a blast. But thank you very well, we are, much. We, and thanks to all your listeners. We will pray you in. That's Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. You can find him on Twitter at Mark Caleb Smith. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge, and this is Faith Radio. When I first listened, I was fairly astounded at not only how much knowledge and information you brought to bear, but how balanced your approach was regarding very difficult, complicated issues. All right, that that might be the best compliment I've ever received. So um, thank you uh, for each and every person who's listening, and that includes you. You may be listening on a live broadcast signal. This actually is a radio network. You may be listening to this um, on the Faith Radio app somewhere around the world where we obviously don't have a live broadcast radio signal. And you may be listening later um, via the podcast. However you're listening, you are listening to Faith Radio. Um, We love you. We appreciate you. This is actually a listener-supported network. So we do fundraising a couple of times a year, and I want to invite you to pray for us as we prepare for our upcoming fall fundraiser. And if you are in a position um, to give, I'd invite you to support the ministry that it might be extended to more and more people, just like you. All right, we are going to, what are we doing next here, Paul? We're going to talk with Alice Matagora. She is the author of How to Save the World, it's unusual for us to have a book interview at this um, at this part of the show, and so not everybody is teed up to text in um, the word book if you want to enter the drawing for the copies of How to Save the World that we're giving away today. So you want to text the word book to 877-933-2484. Here's my conversation with Alice Matagora. You got something to say If you're living, if you're breathing You got something to say We've all heard the great commission of Jesus to each and every one of us as his disciples to go and make disciples. So disciple-making is what we're supposed to be doing, but how in the world do we do it? We're joined today by Alice Matagora. She is the Leader Development Initiatives Program Coordinator for the Navigators and Navigators uh, Collegiate Staff at the University of California at Irvine. Um, She comes to us today with a project that the Navigators did with Barna. The book is How to Save the World, Disciple Making Made Simple. Alice, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. 
Hi, thanks so much, Carmen. It's so good to be here. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about this research that Navigators partnered with Barna on and what you learned from it. Yeah, I mean, there's so much good stuff in the research, but in 2020, Navigators commissioned the Barna Group, a research firm, to conduct a study on disciple making, the state of disciple making in the American church. And like you said, the Great Commission, it's for all followers of Jesus to go and make disciples. And what the research found was that really only 30% of American Christians are making disciples. Uh, I think up to 60%, 40%, no, I'm so, so sorry, 40% are not interested at all in making disciples. Now that those numbers are kind of a far ways away from this calling for all followers of Jesus to make disciples. But the good news is that what the research also illuminated is that the barriers and the challenges people identified to making disciples are actually quite conquerable. Uh, it, usually it, it's come down to mostly lack of confidence believing that they don't have what it takes to make disciples, they're not resourced, and just the struggle to find the time to fit it into their busy lives. Those are all very conquerable, conquerable challenges and barriers. So, so I, I mean, I think there's a lot of potential that the research has illuminated to, to help us make really more targeted, informed decisions as the church to help more followers of Jesus make disciples of all nations. Okay, so when we talk about disciple making, I think we're talking Mm -hmm. about, you know, like replicating um, what discipleship is, who a disciple is, pattern, a person patterned after the life uh, and character and ways of Jesus. I mean, am I am I stumbling around a an understanding of disciple making? No, I mean, I think that you you got it. I think um, what the research also showed is that there really is a lack of familiarity with this term, disciple-making, discipleship, the disciple. I think that people kind of, we've heard it thrown around in our Christian circles, but but we really were not exactly sure what it means, you know? And so I think that's why there's also this hesitation to engage in disciple making. So the navigators, we have kind of like the, these five traits of a disciple maker. Uh, the first is that they love Jesus. You know, they, they want to know Jesus. They want to love Jesus. The second is that they are in his word. They love his word. They value his word. The third is they're in Christian community with one another. The fourth is that they're really living among the lost. We're not in our Christian bubbles away from people who don't know Jesus, but we're really living our everyday lives among the lost. And then the fifth trait of a disciple maker is this idea of generations that disciple makers, they disciple somebody with the idea that that person could eventually go and disciple somebody else so that that person can go and disciple somebody else. And then it becomes this whole ripple out effect. I mean, hopefully to the ends of the earth, right? That's, that's what Jesus, I think, was thinking when he entrusted this reach the ends of the earth to these 11 guys. So, so um, we're talking again with mm-hmm. Alice Matagora from The Navigators. The book is How to Save the World, Disciple Making Made Simple. But Alice, I, I want to take time to review those five traits of a disciple maker because, you know, those who are listening right now are, are now taking notes. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's a person who, number one, loves Jesus, wants to know Jesus and make him known might be one way to mm-hmm. characterize number one. Number two, it's a person who is in the word. One of the things you'll appreciate mm-hmm. about what we do every day is I ask every single day, where in the word are you? Because I don't think that it matters where that. we are, right? It doesn't matter where we are in the yeah. world. 
uh, until it matters mm-hmm. where we are in the word. So where in the word yeah. are you? Um, and mm-hmm. then in Christian community, um, is it too narrow to define that as the church? Uh, well, then I, I think you'd have to go to like, what is the church? How would you define the church? You know what I mean? Uh, so Big so, uh, C. You're going with big C there. Big, yeah, big C church, big right? C, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, but, and then, yeah, yeah. and then living among the lost, um, I think is probably for many, many people, um, who are generationally Christian, um, mm-hmm. that one is really, really challenging. And so I want to, I want to mm-hmm. back up to that and talk about it, but I want you to unpack generations a little bit more. I'm thinking mm-hmm. there about the way Paul disciples Timothy, who he then encourages to disciple others. And I know that a disciple is made when a disciple has made a disciple. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, absolutely. This idea that it was meant to be passed on, it was not meant to stop with just one generation. Uh, that And that was something that the research also showed is that a lot of Christians believe that they are, they've successfully made a disciple. They have successfully finished their disciple making course. If somebody just starts walking with Jesus. And that's good. That's a good thing. We want to see that, but we want to also see it taken to the next level that where they are equipped, you know, like Paul and Timothy, like you said, that the things that Paul, that we entrust to our Timothy's that they go and they teach and they share that with somebody else so that they can go on to do the same thing. That's disciple making is this, this continued line, this continued lineage of faith. When you hear those five traits of a disciple maker, I'm wondering uh, if you're checking off the list, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. We're going to continue our conversation with Alice Matagora in just a moment. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of what we do on live radio every day. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you at MyFaithRadio.com. Right now, we're inviting you to share your Faith Radio story. What do you love about Faith Radio? What do you love about Mornings with Carmen? How has this program changed the way you think or the way you live, the way you engage others in the conversations of the day? We really do want to hear from you. Your story could encourage someone else and certainly glorify God. So share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leave us a message today. Again, thanks for listening. All right, we're continuing our conversation with Alice Matagora. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. Um, Alice and I are talking about um, some research that Navigators did with Barna Research, and the outcomes of that give us a picture of what American Christians say about themselves in terms of disciple-making. So when we think about disciple-making, we're thinking about the Great Commission of Jesus Um, to his disciples that we would go and make disciples. Um, What does that look like? Who's responsible for that? Alice and I are going to argue that every Christian believer is responsible to be a disciple maker. Mm -hmm. Tragically, uh, there's like 40% of American Christians who say, yeah, they're not really interested at all in disciple making. So we need to capture their attention, but we also need to equip those among us who are American Christians who want to be disciple makers. So, Alice, let's talk a little bit about that. Talk with us about some discipleship, disciple-making best practices, maybe those modeled by Jesus himself. Yeah, uh, you know, I think that these disciple-making best practices, I mean, Jesus, what what he did, I, I think 
we get so caught up in, in the mystery of disciple making. We don't know what it means. Like, how do you disciple? How do you make a disciple? You know, you just disciple make, what is it? So, so I think when we look at Jesus and his time spent with his disciples, I mean, the one thing is he spent a lot of time with them, right? He lived life with them. And, and I think when we look at when we think about making disciples, it just seems so daunting. Like, how can I fit that? You know, so I think one of the best practices in disciple making is just keeping an ear out, a spiritual ear out for who in your life, who has God placed in your life right around you, right where you live, right where you work, right where you play, who you could share the love of God with, who you could read the Bible with, who you could share an encouragement with, who you could disciple and and you know be be among them as you're discipling them i think that you know we get daunted thinking about needing to add a whole nother thing to our lives but really what it comes down to is already living out our faith and then the next step of helping somebody grow in their faith in in our lives that we're already living so that might be like i'm a mom of two kids that could be like another mom in a play group or you know for Somebody who yeah, I was also a therapist. It could be another coworker, and we just read the Bible over lunchtime. You know, it doesn't need to be this whole other thing that we add to our already packed lives. It's it's just something that we do while we are already living our lives and living our faith in our lives. So I think that that's one one idea of this best practice. Um, but I think also it, it helps to come prepared. You know, uh, the, the navigators, we have a lot of resources on making disciples. And then in my book, I also outline this, um, you know, we call them follow-up plans, discipleship plans. I mean, it's really the same format, but you can do it on any number of verses or topics that are meaningful to you in your walk with Jesus. Say, for example, mm. like prayer. Like, okay, what is a verse that has been meaningful for me and helpful for me in my practice of prayer and creating a whole a plan to walk somebody through the very basics of what you're doing and then challenge them to do it. I, I just think there has to be some level of intentionality when we enter into our disciple making relationships. Otherwise, it's just kind of like two people hanging out. You know what I mean? And, and, and we really miss out on the impact. I think Jesus, he was always so intentional to impart spiritual truth. He was always intentional with what he asked the disciples to do. He was always really intentional with debriefing the disciples after, you know, when they were like, Hey, how come we couldn't cast out that demon? Jesus, he, he, I mean, he shot it to them straight. He said, well, you guys, you know, it's this faithless generation, you know, you need to have more faith there or like, uh, yeah. So, so I think that there is this aspect of with we have to be with and we have to be intentional but we also have to be relational and know what's going on in the everyday lives of those who we're meeting with because that that is where faith and god that's where what like the divine meets the ordinary that's where this idea of faith in jesus and how it impacts the lives of those who we are discipling like that's where rubber really meets the road and becomes real faith in action so I hear some things um, unfolding out of what you're saying. First is there's an intentionality. We actually have to call people to, I mean, in the same way that Jesus calls people to follow him, like, right, you know, or, or Paul says, you know, the, the mind that you see operating in me, you know, let that mind also be operating in you, like what you see mm-hmm. in me, then also go and do. So there's an intentionality to it. There's certainly mm-hmm. a relational component. This is the like the withing that you're describing. Um, come mm-hmm. along with me as I 
as I eat, as I read, as I as I walk, as I talk, as I work. Um, there's a there's a a rubbing off component in some of this that that's the caught part, um, not just the mm-hmm. talk part. And then there's right. this incarnational aspect, which. Um, you know, it, it, there are these times and spaces in people's lives where what they really need is Jesus with some flesh on. And what I hear mm-hmm. you saying is I got to be close enough to people. I got to be my proximity to people who are really hurting and really broken and in real need. That proximity has to be close enough that when I walk into that event in their life on their worst day at whatever's happening, mm-hmm. you know, they sort of recognize that the spirit of Christ shows up with this person and that and that mm-hmm. creates that moment of of longing that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we all arrive at before we come to Jesus, we all arrive at that point of longing to want him. Um, Mm -hmm. and then the transformation comes and that's obviously the work of the Holy spirit in the life of a person. And what, what exciting, um, joy and privilege it is when, um, when that happens, when, you know, Mm -hmm. when that moment occurs in the life of a, um, of a fellow human being who, you know, embraces mm-hmm. their eternal reality and gets transferred from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. I mean, like that is amazing to get to be yeah. a part of and then to walk with them in that. So the yeah. process is not to just get a person to the prayer. Like I'm not trying to get them down right. the Romans road to a prayer. I'm mm-hmm. trying to get them um, all the way home to the father's house with yes, me. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And I love what you shared at the end. I mean, the joy of having front row seats to somebody's spiritual transformation in Christ, moving from the king of darkness to the kingdom of light, or making these little lordship decisions on their own. There is no greater joy. And, and I believe God, he calls us into this disciple making work so that we can experience this joy of his father heart. You know, when, when his children, when he, people decide to be his children or they decide to submit themselves to him or they decide to love him, choose to love him. There's no greater joy. You know, my husband and I, we, um, we've been married for 14 years and our oldest is two and a half. So we spent a lot of years single and childless, but I was like the fun aunt, right. But, but I can tell you it was fun while I was really fun. It was really fun being fun aunt. It's different having your own children and walking them through the development of like, stop throwing things. What are you going to stop throwing things? And then when they start to listen, when they start to show self-control, when they start to make good decisions, it's like, there's no greater joy. Or when they like the first time they look up and they say, I love you on your, on their own, that there's, there's no greater joy. And I just think Jesus, he wants to invite us into this deeper experience of who he is by partnering with him in disciple making. Alice, I feel like there are um, a million things we could talk about from here, from your experience as a, you know, as a licensed uh, marriage and family therapist and a campus minister and a former social worker. But now I also know that you're a mom. So like, right, there's a whole (laughs) new, like, that's a whole new area um, to plumb and explore. Disciple making is something that can and should happen all the time, everywhere, in every single one of our relationships. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, I think it can. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think so, too. Um, And I think that's, you know, another sort of practical Jesus-y approach to the whole thing. It's not as if Jesus was only interested in discipling the 12. He was interested Mm -hmm. in discipling the, you know, the 120 who were hanging about and and then beyond that, you know, to the Mm -hmm. crowds as well. Like, right, we see him in those sort of concentric circles of influence. Um, and then certainly yeah. we experience the one generation to another um, as people who not only possess 
uh, you know, in our hands and in our hearts, the very word of God. What a treasure mm-hmm. and a gift. But the spirit mm-hmm. of the living God that has lived in every believer in every generation. Like, that's incredible. Mm. That's just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yes, that's right. And, you know, just as you were talking about that, what comes to mind is Jesus, you know, this one one of the uh, common barriers to to disciple making is people think like, that sounds like the job of like a full-time minister or a pastor. And, And my pushback to that is like Jesus, he did call some to follow him and to minister with him. But he also called many to stay. Like there were people who asked him, can I come with you? And Mm. Jesus, he calls them to stay and to proclaim the good news of of what he has done in their lives, where they are living, where they're playing and where they're working. And so he, disciple making, it's not just about coming and leaving everything and and being a full-time minister of the gospel, but it's for everyday people who stay, but who are called and commissioned to be faithful right where they live play and work in making disciples. Yeah, I think they're about the um the the woman of Samaria and, yes. and what her oh, yes. transformed life, like right, what her transformed life meant generation mm-hmm. to generation right there in that one place. All right, we have to leave it right there. Alice, what a joy to talk with you. Alice Matagora, you can um you can find her on Facebook at Alice Matagora. You can also find her at The Navigators. We've been talking today about her new book, How to Save the World, Disciple Making Made Simple. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. So the U.S. government is surging, is urging, excuse me, urging Americans in Ukraine to leave the country immediately. The United States is warning that Russia is stepping up efforts to launch attacks on civilians there, civilian infrastructure and government facilities in the coming days. Um, The renewed U.S. warning follows similar announcements from Ukrainian President uh, Vladimir Zelensky and other officials that Moscow um, may carry out intense attacks, including missile strikes, to coincide with Ukraine's Independence Day, which is tomorrow. Um, In some areas of Ukraine, officials have issued a a ban on all large gatherings. Um, Discussions are ongoing to try to secure the release of of Americans, Brittany Greiner and Paul Whelan from Russia. Um, It's described as uh, urgent, the language being used by the U.S. government in relationship to the situation in Ukraine is urgent. I think I'd, I think I would have picked the word desperate. Um, we have numbers now from UNICEF that a thousand children, nearly a thousand children have been killed or injured um, in Ukraine. Um, 363 known to have died since the invasion. Um, Many others wounded. You're going to see um, headlines like Ukraine's children bear the burdens of war. You're going to hear um, Ukraine's children are at risk of becoming a lost generation. And so I want us to invite, I want to invite us all to be praying today. I mentioned this yesterday and um, it's heavy upon me. And so I want you to consider what God might be calling us to do as individuals and as families and as communities of faith in terms of 
real help. Real refuge. And um, we're a body. We're a body of believers. And we individually have the capacity to do a lot more than sometimes we dare to think or imagine. Um, and so let me invite you to consider checking out the um, U.S. government's uh, Uniting for Ukraine. And it is at, um, if you just type in Uniting for Ukraine, F-O-R, Uniting for Ukraine, um, it'll come up and you can you can read about this program um, that the U.S. government has opened up to provide a pathway for Ukrainian citizens and their immediate family members um, to come to the United States. And uh, so pray for our family because we have engaged with a family in Odessa, a young mom and her two little boys and uh, and then her mother. So the grandmother, the mother and the two little boys, one and three years old. Um, Ruslan, who is the dad, has uh, just gotten his conscription orders from the government and um, and is likely uh, going to no longer be with his family in Odessa, um, but on the front lines somewhere. And so we're working in the Uniting for Ukraine process to provide a pathway for um, that young mom and her two babies and that grandma to come and live with us. And I guess I want to open that up to you because I want you to be praying for us. Um, This is totally unknown territory, but we feel compelled. We can't do everything. And we don't think we should rely on the government to do everything. But we can do something. We can do this. What can you do? What can you do today for a person who, if you were in that circumstance, you would want someone like you to do something? If you were in their circumstance, what would you want someone like you to do? That's the way I've thought about this. If I were in Zofia's um, situation, I would want someone like me to say, you know what, come live with us for a while. I don't know for how long, and I don't know what the future portends, but um, I can do this. So pray for us. Pray for the uh, LaBurge family as we are engaged in the Uniting for Ukraine process Uh, to bring one little family from Odessa, Ukraine, to the United States and care for them for as long as it takes. Hey, we're the people who um, love sacrificially and live sacrificially. So, uh, yeah, I think that's my invitation for this hour. Prayerfully consider what God's calling you to do with the blessings he has poured into your life and pray for us as we do likewise. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.